Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And, uh, ooh, if you have any questions or comments, send them to us at kbmakel at aol.com. Still not getting many, but I did manage to dig up a few for this one. And um, also, you can put them in the comments section on Podbean. So, anyway, I just want to go over a couple of quick things. Uh, number one is... Hey, I have no sponsors. I have no overlords. So the stuff I give you, I'm not trying to hawk you some piece of garbage that somebody's paying me to hawk. That just doesn't happen. So uh, not only does that not happen, but you know I'm free to say what I want, and that's that's how it goes. So and I'm not part of any. You know, there are there are networks of podcasts that all have sponsors and, you know, editorial lines that they like to pull. Not a part of any of that. Just don't need it. Um, just don't need to be there. You know, I'm not here to make money off of anybody. And I don't like people who are here to make money off of everybody. So that's just kind of where I am. So quickly. I uh, just want to cover a few things, uh, trying to stay away from the, the politics a little bit, but a few things do stand out. Number one, uh, you know, the interest in firearms is peaking because we live in such dangerous times. I mean, I can't think of a more dangerous time. And I've lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and a whole bunch of other things. And this is worse. This is worse. Um, not because the threats are out there and up in our face, but because simply our our media and our politicians are just oblivious to them. They act like they don't exist. Uh, first thing is the Ukraine escalation. We're now sending heavy weapons to Ukraine. Okay, We've sent them the HIMARS, which is a missile system which can strike a lot of things. And that's a very advanced system, and we've sent it there. Um, we're going to send them Patriots, air defense missiles. And now we're going to send. Now we're sending them ground combat vehicles, um, sending them a lot of M2 Bradleys and at least 31 M1A2 tanks. Uh, you know, this is throwing gasoline on the fire. And the European allies are doing the same thing. They're sending all the Leopard twos that they can find, you know, in junkyards and storage sheds and everything else. And they're trying to whip those into shape and send it to them. Earlier, they kind of cleaned out their stocks of the old. Soviet T-72s. Um, this is a fiasco. And here's why it is a fiasco. Uh, you're not getting any legitimate war reporting out of Ukraine. We don't know how well or how poorly the Ukrainians are doing vis-a-vis -vis the Russians. All I know is I look at the map and what I see is a fairly static battlefield reminiscent of World War One. Um, or neither side has what's known as enough ISR, intelligence, reconnaissance, and surveillance, to really figure out what the other side is doing, where they're strong, where they're weak. So we're kind of doing these small, you know, frontal World War One style attacks against each other. Now, recently, the Ukrainians, within recently meaning the last few months, they did win some territory back. Um, not much in the overall scheme, but, you know, certainly to get a, you know, kind of a moral victory or, a, you know, kind of a, a, uh, a morale boost. But the fact of the matter is, it is still a big, uh, 
a big chunk of their country has been taken and is now occupied. And whether or not they want to admit that or not is, is up to them. The, the real danger here is not only is it escalating, but there's no hope for a brokered peace because both sides are intractable. Um, the Ukrainians say, hey, not one foot of our soil is are we willing to give up. And the Russians are, well, this is now our territory. We've, we've annexed this. This is part of Russia. So if you attack it, you attack the whole country. So it, it's intractable. Uh, there's no there's no room for peace there's no room for mediation there's no room uh, for any kind of uh, negotiations and in fact that happened apparently in January the Biden administration was stupid enough to suggest that like hey you know let's get some peace let's let the Russians keep this and uh, and, and both sides rejected it uh, the Russians want more and the Ukrainians won't give up anything so there you are and now we're putting more and more advanced weapons into it. A year into this thing, and it's not just, well, they're kind of using these old Soviet weapons against each other. Um, it, it is now escalating so that very modern systems, and they're talking about uh, modern fighters for the Ukrainians. They're talking about all this stuff. This, this could easily, easily, spin out of control and it could easily go into weapons of mass destruction i mean this is this is ugly and there's some other ugly business there too there's there's nuclear power plants and a few other things that are kind of in the line of fire and those things could wind up you know having some sort of catastrophic accident this is not a this is not a simple problem this is not a you can you can frame it as good versus evil and I mean you know all the stupid stories you see on the news there's no legit war reporting so we really don't know how this is working out but I don't think it's working out nearly as well for the Ukrainians as they would like to to uh, illustrate to us they're illustrating that hey they're super valiant they got the upper hand and all they need is just a little bit more and they can they can pull this off now i don't think that's going to happen and i think even if they did get in the position where they could pull it off that's when you could start getting weapons of mass destruction and a few other things tossed in there that uh, would negate their advantages so it's very very dangerous uh, china and taiwan china is flying all around and intimidating Taiwan. That this is not a coincidence. This is not business as usual. They see that Russia is essentially getting away what they're getting away with in Crimea and Ukraine, and they're saying, "Hey, this is the same situation. People on the island are Chinese. We're the government of China. That is part of our country, and we're going to take it." It's it's complete hogwash, but that's how they see it. I don't know if the West has the stomach to do anything but let Taiwan go under. Um, we'll see what how it happens, but I have a very funny feeling that Taiwan is in real trouble. Real, real trouble. Then we have the domestic stuff. Um, 
you know, you saw the Antifa in Atlanta deal here this last couple weeks. I mean, we have to go back to 2006, almost, well, 17 years ago. It'll be 20 years in a, in a few years. When then Senator and potential presidential candidate Barack Hussein Obama, and what Mr. Hussein Obama was saying was there needed to be a civilian defense corps which was nearly as well armed as the military they could you know stand up for the rights of people and and all this it's very hard to find any of that that he has said they've, they've managed to expunge that uh, from the internet but he did say that now most people just blew it off as hey this is just some guy he was trying to appeal to the base of his party which is very radical and they just blew it off but really when you look at antifa now, they're not as well armed as the military, obviously, or really as anybody else, but they do exist. They are a street thug army for the Democratic Party. And if they ever decide to, you know, they got they got some extreme logistics and command and control challenges and a few other things. But, you know, if you just live out in a suburb somewhere, they could come out there and crush you. They could be out there for a night or two and just wreak havoc on your community. And you know what? No one is going to do shit about it. They're not going to do shit because they're not doing it about it now. The war on cops is so complete that, and I know a guy who is a retired police officer, 30 years in a large city department. And we were talking the other day. There was a national story about um, police department. I think it's in Memphis. Uh, there was kind of a wild party happened. One of the female officers who's, who she's married to somebody who's not in that department, but in law enforcement somewhere. Well, there was this promiscuous party happening and, you know, all of this. And it turns out that she had had affairs with several of the officers so well, three or four of them wind up getting fired and and all the rest of this now why is this a national story number one because it's salacious you know it's naughty uh, and they got pictures of this off female officer and everything else they got you know they got all the good stuff that they they want to get to get people to click on it the next thing is it's a beat down it's the psychological beat down on the police that really police are really dirtbags and scum and here's just more proof that's what that is now then we go to the beating death of a black motorist and uh, you know what happens there well all the as when it's first happened when it first happened it was awesome because I was listening to it on the radio I was listening on the radio I was doing a commute and one of the the dippy talk show people she she said now you know race is going to be brought into this this is going to be big racial incident da, 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 da. and her co-host said well i just got the thing here and it appears that all the police officers are also black so there's no caucasians involved in this and she was fit to be tied all of a sudden this is not race-based and and really it took them it took them like two days before they could do two things number one saying well it doesn't matter the race of the policeman because basically this is about police brutality they go down the police brutality road 
and then they still they still try to bring race into it well it's because there's this white racist training program trains these black officers so they act in a white racist way you know it's all complete hogwash it's all complete garbage and they're proffering that they the same kind of people who think your first graders should go to a drag queen show are also um, pushing this kind of garbage so that they're training they're trying to train the public at large and I bet this is huge in the schools that the police are the enemy that they're the bad guys that we'd have just this wonderful you know mr. Rogers neighborhood society if it wasn't for the police it's complete hogwash a complete lie and it's backed up by liars frauds charlatans and con men who unfortunately are in our government in Washington DC these evil people part of the establishment back there the swamp they're getting all into this too and you know again the people who every time something an issue comes up they're all big experts in it um, and then they they pass some sort of idiotic legislation you know we, we, we have to be done with them we have to get rid of the establishment in Washington DC we have to have term limits we cannot have Feinsteins Pelosi's McConnell's we can't have these people anymore and all of their their stooges we we just can't have it anymore we have to have a return to legitimately elected people and it's uh, it's just amazing it's absolutely amazing um, the, the number of liars who are in the Congress is it, it it's actually amazing remember there's the guy who claimed to be a Vietnam veteran and he wasn't that guy Blumenthal there's this George Santos dude who got elected he's nothing he said has been true um, my favorite one representative Emmanuel Cleaver Emmanuel Cleaver is a fraud and a liar and here's why we know this when Obamacare was passed and rolled out and they they walked out of the Capitol up to you know they had made something they were gonna walk down to the White House and present the the past bill so Obama could sign it uh, Cleaver was talking about he was called the n-word and spat on and you know when I heard that I said man that's pretty reprehensible who would who would really do that and then a couple of course a couple of the <laughs> there's videotape which is why he shouldn't have opened his mouth if he's gonna lie um, the videotape there was no there was there was a soundtrack there was nobody shouted the n-word at him nobody spit on them none of that It was a complete fraudulent lie now why would you tell a lie like that unless you just wanted to ferment trouble and you know that's that's got to be it what is more anti-american than that than than basically trying to start a riot you know inciting a riot so we are in dangerous times and uh, you you have to start getting ready for that now what whatever steps you need to take uh, in your personal life in your professional life however it is you need to get by because frankly um, this this could be we could be in a very 
2019 was a paradise year. It was like living in paradise. 2023, there's some definite clouds on the horizon. And it may very well be that by the end of this year, or halfway through this year, we are in a horrible position, someplace that we hoped we would never be. And, uh, you know, we already have cartels on our running our border. You know, cartels, they just own it. They just own it. They're shoving as many people across as they can. They're, they own it. And somehow we don't have the physical and moral courage to go down and shoot the bad guys. Just, I'm sorry, it's just that simple. You identify the bad guys and you have to go shoot them. There's, there's no other way. There's no way to contain them. There's no other way to change their behavior. There's no other way to scare them. They're not scared of us. So we have to do something. We have to go eliminate the bad guys. You know, clear and present danger, the Tom Clancy book was about the same thing, except it was in Colombia. Now Colombia is south of the Rio Grande. The Colombia of the 80s is south of the Rio Grande. Think how scary that is. Speaking of the Rio Grande and the West, it seems that Mr. Alec Baldwin has been charged with negligent homicide. And so has that goofy girl who um, was the armorer on the set of the movie Rust. The movie Rust, about an aging gunfighter who, I guess he's going to shoot all the bad guys. Who, who knows? Um, some stupid, low-rent, low-budget production that Baldwin cobbled together. Baldwin, Mr. Anti-Gun. And, of course, he's, he's not quite anti-gun enough that, that uh, he'll stop using them in his movies. And when he does use them in his movies, he doesn't like... Uh, tear up his paycheck saying oh i'm against this you know we i can't have this no he's he's running his fat little ass down to the bank to hit hit the deposit button um but then he'll lecture he doesn't think people like you and i should own guns only people like him responsible people like him and it turns out that you know i don't want to cover all the the details but he fired a gun which killed killed dead shot dead his uh, uh what is she cinematographer yeah this lady who is a cinematographer trying to make a career for herself I, I guess she was working on some low rent you know she she's she's a cinematographer for basically these cheap low rent productions um hoping that maybe someday she bust into the big time you know um and that's all good that's all good she certainly did not deserve to be shot but, you know, Baldwin and no one else there, no one has said, we are so sorry that this happened. And, you know, we need to find out the responsibility. Instead, it was like, well, I never pulled the trigger. Uh, I would never point a gun at someone. I would never do that. When he obviously did it. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, she somehow jumped in front of him when he was firing it. Um, they did not control the weapons. And here's... Here's something I can tell you. Years ago, uh, I was offered a position of because I was a I was a weapons guy, firearms guy, weapons guy, of of doing that in that industry. Now I wouldn't even consider it for a variety of reasons, but in just thinking how I would do it, I mean, every gun would be locked. 
under my control and you know I would every every scrap of ammo would be or fake ammo or blanks that would all be under my control and it would be under my personal supervision because that's how it has to be and it wasn't people obviously and you heard the rumors people obviously snuck um <laughs> they were sneaking live rounds in there and then hey after the shootings all wrapped up they were going out into the desert and target shooting with the guns that were used on the movie with live ammunition which was obviously brought into the vicinity of the set people were doing this insanity that is absolute insanity and then they hire a 23 or 24 year old girl who is not qualified to do that to be the armorer and she's also the prop master so she's got two jobs because they're cheap and Baldwin was the producer his job is to make the movie as cheap on the cheap that he can and this other lady this poor lady the cinematographer paid for his cheapness with her life so I hope they I hope they do throw the book at the guy I hope he does get jail time he deserves it a lot of people are defending him you know wasn't his fault well then whose fault was it because nobody is assigning any blame to anything and you know that fits into the garbage narrative that well you know it wasn't anybody's fault but guns are bad and and bad things happen around guns no bad things happen when people act stupidly irresponsibly negligently just like with anything else just like with cars just like the poor guy what was his name jeremy renner who got crunched by a snowplow um just like the guy who played uh, Chekhov in the latest star trek movies got crunched by his car if you do not act smart around machinery firearms all this other stuff it will hurt you it will so uh that's the thing with rust well now we can get into my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers and uh, before we do that though i do have an update i do have an update uh, i was probably maybe it was two years ago i don't know um i told you the story how i had this beautiful eight millimeter mauser surplus ammunition that i'd been i'd been you know holding on to for years <laughs> you know it was always in my little eight millimeter mauser ammo box and uh i went out to to fire it one day to fire some of them and about half of them were duds so i was like oh man this is awful you know i've been carrying this around half of this is and that happens with surplus ammo at a certain point it degrades the point where the primers you know become unreliable so i put it away i fortunately i saved the dud ammo because i figured well maybe i'll pull it for you know at least get the bullet out of it or something because it was this Berdan prime military stuff but it's beautiful nice shiny very very nice ammo so i put it all away and uh recently i purchased a late war german mauser eight millimeter same same caliber but a shorter you know handy rifle the ones the ones you always see when you see the the 98k or k98k the gun i shot in before was a check mauser 
which is actually long. It was a 9822, which is like the World War One German Mauser, only it doesn't. It has a more modern uh, rear sight because after World War One, the Germans and everybody else kind of figured out that that sight, the sight they had on their gun, wasn't very good. So they put a they put a more modern one, and it looks like the kind of Mauser sight you would see on any any rifle, any Mauser rifle, you know, post World War One. Simple ladder sight. So anyway, uh, I take I took some of this ammo out and I said, well, I'll just try it in this new Mauser, and lo and behold, everyone went off. So then I said, hmm. I took some of the duds and I loaded them in, and they went off too. So it was never the ammo's problem. It was the fact that the bolt spring in the Czech Mauser was weak. So I replaced that, and lo and behold, it fires all of the uh, uh, fires all the ammo too. So there was a the lesson was when you get misfires, you might want to check and make sure that you just don't have a weak spring in the bolt because some of these rifles have had them in there for a hundred years and I'm not I'm not kidding it's a hundred years even the newer ones the latest ones are gonna be 70 50 to 80 years old so you know springs like everything else need to be replaced once in a while so you really do need to check your springs you know and our friend of the podcast he did he did this too I think he had a similar problem and he changed a bolt spring and corrected it. And it may and it was in a Mauser rifle. So um, Moisen rifles usually the springs in those are very, very stout, so you don't have that problem, but um, you know, any 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 spring needs to be replaced. Especially with older auto pistols, you know. You know, sometimes a spring it may look good, it may feel good, it may rack, but you know that, that spring might be eighty years old especially with world war ii weapons and then even longer for earlier ones but anyway let's get to the first question and that is famous people's guns how do they wind up in private collections um usually usually it's because they come down in the family and then at a certain point somebody in the family says they want money more than they want famous grandfather's or great-grandfather's pistol so they sell it that that's one way another way is a lot of famous people gift guns to people um you know there's a, a walther pp or ppk i think it is that's actually was made for hitler which was very ornate and hitler did not like ornate guns so he gave it to a, a flying ace and that gun has survived, so it's it's Hitler's gun, but he never liked it, never never, obviously used it or anything. He kind of gave it away, and so that's how another how another way it can get they they're gifted to somebody outside the family, and then again somebody says, "Wow, this this was Theodore Roosevelt's gun given to my great great grandfather," but you know, hey, I'd rather have the money, so it gets sold. Uh, there are a lot of things like that. Very few guns are are government property um so a lot of the private guns it's just like any other belonging you know you you watch antiques roadshow or some of the other things and you find hey this was john f kennedy's cigar humidor well how in the world did that get on antiques roadshow and some guy from you know vermont owns it you know and there's usually just this thing of well it was given to somebody 
and you know I inherited it from great uncle who who was you know a friend of of someone and so the a lot of these things get into collections that way um, usually sometimes they're discovered after a period of time a lot of times they just stay in the family and then uh, yeah wow you know this this Colt pistol belonged to my you know great 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 my third great grandfather who was you know at the battle of whatever you know just there you know yeah he was he was with Custer at uh, the Little Bighorn not with Custer's 7th Cavalry but with one of the regiments it was you know the infantry regiment that was marching with him so a lot of this stuff just comes down in the family and then it just gets sold out it, it gets and you think about it uh, like what was the the Colt Walker that sold for nine hundred and some thousand dollars? There comes a point where something becomes too valuable to hold in your personal collection, you know, to or hold in your personal belongings. If all of a sudden you have a gun worth a mi almost a million dollars, you have to kind of step back and say, where is the appropriate place for this? Is it with me, or can the money do me some good? And and this goes somewhere else. So that's how most of them get into collections. Um, a lot of um, one-off, like prototype firearms and things like that, were simply just being disposed of, and somebody picks them up. Like, hey, this was you know a concept rifle that we were we were working on, and guess what? We're really not going to pursue it. So we built four of these things. <laughs> you know, who wants them? They probably sell them for a nominal nominal fee. So that's how famous people's uh, guns get into uh, collections. Uh, a lot of military guns, you know, there are a lot of people who have guns that their ancestors used in the military. And a lot of times they were just given those because nobody cared or they were allowed to purchase them uh, from the government, almost like a CMP, DCM type situation of, yeah, this is my pistol, I'm just going to, you know pay you the you know pay you the hundred bucks for it and I can keep it so that kinda went away that kinda went away sometime after World War One and before World War Two a lot of the World War Two guns that came back were just simply pilfered because you know hey after the Battle of Iwo Jima nobody was watching you know um, nobody was really counting 1911s you know so uh, they were probably uh, written off as, as some sort of combat loss, but hey, they wound up in a duffel bag on the way home. So that's how that happens. Uh, question number two. Will the ATF successfully outlaw braces? They're talking about pistol braces, those evil things that you put on the back of a pistol so you can shoot it better. Um, Number one, I don't know how many of these things were made, but there's a couple of companies that were making them and making a profit. So I'm assuming that they sold large quantities of these things. So there's a lot of them out there. And apparently there's going to be a little grace period where you can register it for free and all the rest of it. I don't think it's going to stand up in court. I think that when they said these things were okay, and then for them to turn around... And then for them to say, no, you can't have this, even though it's a regulation and not a law, it, it kind of constitutionally, it's going to look like an ex post facto law. 
So, yeah, what was legal is now illegal. Even though we said before it was legal, I, I think they're going to get wrapped up in court. You know, the, one of the things that kind of underreported is bump stocks are legal. The, the court basically said, no, you can't do that. Now, no company is really making them, and I don't think any company is really going to start because bump stocks are stupid. But the precedent is there now that they can't really um, destroy these things. You know, they can't say, oh, this, this was legal, now it is illegal. No, there's, there's kind of a precedent, no matter what it is, whether it's a bump stock. And I'm sure the, the same reasoning will be used with the braces. So um, does that mean I want one? No, frankly, I just kind of stay away from it. I do have a couple of legally registered SBRs, and I'm I'm good with that. I'm, you know, at a certain point, I'm not fighting City Hall on this. If they say you pay me 200 bucks, you do this paperwork, we send it back to you, and then you can put the shorter barrel on. There you go. I'm I'm good with that. Okay, here is an interesting question. Which is the better rifle for World War II combat, the USM1, the Soviet SVT-40? Or the German G43. Uh, those, for just a quick background, those are all full battle rifle cartridge rifles. Um, they're not intermediate cartridge, so they're the real deal. Um, which one was the better rifle? Well, I have to say, without doubt, the most developed design was the USM1. And so it, it's the best rifle. It's got the best sights, the best iron sights, and it has the best trigger pull. It's pretty simple. It's totally good rifle. And it's got the best loading feature um, that, that kind of goes with it. it. It's got that eight-round end block clip, which is outstanding, and, and really the best way to reload a, a rifle like that. The other two rely on the traditional clip loading that, you know, Mauser and, and Moisen rifles use. Doesn't work very well. It, it, it works, but it's not as fast. So you lose some advantage there. The, um, they do also don't have the good trigger pulls, and they also have much more rudimentary sights, you know, simple ladder sights. Now, where they excel is they were both easier to mount a scope onto and, and becoming a a sniper rifle a you know in as we know it in World War II any any scoped military rifle was a, a sniper rifle nowadays everybody wants to quibble about what is a sniper rifle but back then a rifle that had a scope on it that had a telescopic sight and was issued to a marksman uh, with the idea of hitting point targets was a sniper and a sniper rifle so there you go. So um, the Soviet SVT just had a little, it, a very simple scope mount that went on. Not every single rifle could accommodate that, but it, 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 was, it was easily modified. It, it, it was a quick modification to get it on there. Um, the German G43 was also scoped, uh, a very good rifle. But you know those those neither of those rifles you know they if you put all three of them on the range and fired each one i think you would you know in your heart of hearts you would say yes the m1 is superior now unfortunately the m1 was much more difficult to mount a scope on it had to be an offset scope and you know all the drama that goes on with all that and which mount to use and and so there really wasn't 
in World War II they had they had them, but I don't know that they saw much, if any, combat. They had the scoped uh, M1s, and they were much more prevalent for the Korean War and, of course, the uh, Vietnam War. And some of them even got as far as uh, Desert Storm. So there you go. Uh, but the SVT and the uh, G43. Uh, the G43 was, you know, 8mm Mauser, 10-shot magazine, and it was very popular with the German troops. You look at them, and of course, you know, the, the wartime production, um, you know, all the things that, that were kind of on that, they appear to be somewhat crude, but they were they worked, and, and a lot of people still have them and, and still use them today. The SVT, uh, same thing. Um, it's actually, you know, relatively well made considering the uh, emergency conditions it, most many of them were manufactured under. And the uh, when the Germans and Finns captured them, uh, they liked them. They liked them a lot. So um, all three were, were good, pretty comparable. Um, I think the M1 kind of wins by a nose unless you're putting telescopic sights on it then the other two might be might be a little bit better but um, yeah they were um, interesting and it's interesting they all became obsolete with the STG 44 and later the uh, SKS 45 and and eventually AK 47 and all the intermediate cartridges really kind of swamped the um, semi-automatic battle rifles really just they were just kind of swamped by it although individually there were some excellent they were excellent weapons you know but um yeah time marched on and, and technology just kind of went went by them okay here's another one this reference is a question from last podcast if jeff cooper's scout rifle is an outdated concept what about his praise for the 1911 style pistols? Um, I would say that uh, you you could make an argument that a lot of his praise for the 1911 is is pretty much dated because there wasn't anything else uh, available, really. I mean, this is back in the day when a CZ 75 was this rare unicorn. And it was considered to be the ultimate combat pistol. And, you know, so when you talked about the 1911, it was really the Browning High Power, Smith & Wesson Model 59, and, you know, a few other things that were around, you know, in the 70s, when Cooper was really at his most prolific point. And, um, you know, there you go. Um, so, but a lot of the things he said about it have not changed, and they're still true today. You know, it is comparatively thin. It is extremely robust and reliable. It is powerful, and it is simple to operate. And um, you know, all those things are still true. Now, it's it's also heavy, and it's also fairly large size. You know, they've been trying to make it smaller for for a long time, and and with various the commanders, the combat commander and and uh, commander, one having an aluminum frame and the other having a steel frame you know a little bit shorter still the same the slide was a little bit shorter and a little bit more compact uh, that was pretty successful some of the very shortened versions uh, didn't work out so well so there you go 
Um, but I think that, uh, you know, the 1911, you, if the 1911 were as truly obsolete and irrelevant as the kind of the mainstream gun culture would lead you to believe, uh, then it wouldn't have as many haters. It'd be like, it'd be like a Luger. People would say, hey, that's a very cool gun, but, you know, really? Luger? You know, I mean, nobody would uh, would even proffer that it's a, a, you know, carry option today, whereas people still carry the 1911s. And in fact, the 2011, 2211s, whatever they call them, the, the 9mm double stack 1911s are, it's... It's a mystery to me, but they're very, very popular. So that shows you that the 1911 is as good as it ever was, and, and most of Cooper's writings on it still probably hold up. Here's an awesome question that I have no real good answer to. How should I select a defensive handgun? Well, you should decide what your use is. Is it home defense, or is it a concealed carry piece that you, you're going to carry out and round with you? A lot of times it's both. You should go to gun ranges that rent pistols and rent as many types as you can to find out what you like and what you don't like. If you have friends that are into firearms, you can solicit their opinions. Uh, I hate to say it, but you could read drivel on the internet because it goes on and on and on and you could find it. Um, but really nothing will, nothing will substitute for hands-on experience. And, you know, th this is all predicated upon that you can already shoot somewhat, that you have some familiarity with handguns. If you have none, then you need to start looking at some very basic courses and, and uh, really educating yourself. That's It's kind of a... Most people will usually rush to judgment, buy something, and then figure out later on, hey, this, this isn't really what I wanted. And when they gain more experience, they, they then uh, um, usually buy something else and make a better choice. So that's the, that's the deal there. Okay, another question. Who is the authority on firearms which I should read first? And again, this is a... You should read Hatcher's Notebook. Uh, Julian Hatcher was a Major General, U.S. Army, President of the NRA, uh, kind of a World War I veteran. So he was really most active uh, from, like, say, the 1920s to the late 50s, maybe even up to the mid-60s. Uh, he was still around. Um, he was a genuine authority on all types of, of firearms. And his Hatcher's Notebook is, is excellent. If you're interested in military rifles, then read his book of the Garand. But he's kind of the guy that started it really all. You know, and then from there, branch into whatever whatever interest you have, whether if it's hunting, then there's plenty of books by great hunters out there. Um, if it's Africa hunting, there's also books about that. There's North American hunting. Um, there's shotgunning. Um, there's handgunning. You know, you there's no nobody covers all of that in tremendous contemporary detail, but Hatcher's notebook will cover a lot of the basics. So when you branch out, you'll have a good basis of knowledge. So that's the one I would um, I would recommend. Plus, it's just interesting history. It just really is. He he uh, he was kind of an interesting guy. So um, 
you know, reading some of that is really, uh, um, really pretty awesome. Okay, do cast bullets really work in rifles? The answer is yes. They work best in pistol caliber carbines, not surprisingly, uh, because you get uh, you, you do have more velocity in a pistol caliber carbine than you have in a pistol, but a pistol bullet and cast bullets are usually very good choices for pistols. Uh, will perform very well in these these carbines, very very well. Um, so that's a that's a definite thing there. That's that's the no brain answer. In other cartridges which have traditionally been successful, uh, like a thirty thirty Winchester, as a good example, um, yes, you can you can get a hundred and seventy grain um, cast bullet. Um, moderate load and it's not as powerful as a factory jacketed bullet load but it'll it'll suffice for uh, almost every use they're very comfortable to shoot it's a great way to introduce a novice shooter to um, a more powerful gun by using a cartridge that's not the full factory power so um, that's that's where they work I'm really excited I'm gonna have a, a project where I'm gonna start um, Casting and hand loading for 7.65 by 53 Argentine. Um, I've got two of the rifles. They're both 91s. Um, they're very cool. Uh, one is the Peruvian model that's got the uh, the World War One German long vizier sight on it, and they're just going to be fun to shoot. They're just going to be fun to shoot, and I think cast bullets will be perfect in those. I don't really want to push them hard. But I don't want them wimpy either. So there's some. Fortunately, the uh, Lyman Handbook has got some good cast bullet loads for that caliber. So we're gonna gonna play around with that, and uh, I'll start out with a 312 bullet and see how that works, and uh, you know go from there. Um, I usually I have done it in the past, but I haven't done it in a while. Um, I usually I have slugged bores. And tried to match up. What I have found is when you slug a bore, it's very difficult to measure the slug. <laughs> you know, you, you basically take a plug of lead, some very soft lead, and you you pound it down the uh, barrel using a uh, rawhide hammer and uh, uh, wooden dowels. You don't you don't damage the gun in any way. And then you get when you get it all the way through, it pops out the uh, the end of the barrel, and you you measure it with calipers well depending on the rifling and a few other things it's hard to get a really good measurement on that so I've always found that difficult the good part I is I've always found that it gives you an indicator like my martini Henry fortunately has a pretty tight bore so it shoots four five nine bullets pretty well um, I measured it at 459 whether that was a great measurement or not I don't know but but I did my best um, some other ones I, I've also done a couple of trapdoors and fortunately they came in at 458 459 which means that all of my 45 caliber guns can use the same bullet which is nice because that, that just simplifies life for me so <laughs> that's that's all pretty good um, and you know, cast bullets, 
and I don't know if I could replicate this, but I turned out cast bullet loads for my um, one of my trap doors, and that thing at 100 yards shot a clover leaf group. I mean, and it was it shot several of them, and I was amazed. I mean, amazed is is probably an understatement. Um, I, I just couldn't believe it, but boy, did it shoot great! And um, you know, it, it that's what happens if you can match the um, size of the bullet to the bore. You can get some outstanding accuracy, just outstanding. So it's a lot of um, a lot of fun that way. You get a lot of reward out of it, especially if you're doing black powder. It's a it's very rewarding to do all this stuff your um, um, yourself, and it's and it's pretty cool. So you know that's uh, that's one of the joys of hand loading, one of the joys of bullet casting, and and everything else. I do think I do not use um, powder coated bullets in black powder. There's no real reason to do that. Uh, so I use those though in everything else. And you know, they shoot extremely clean. I haven't had a leading problem yet. Knock on wood, but I haven't had a leading problem yet using the uh, powder coating. And, and I'm no, you know, I am not the oracle of powder coating. Um, there's some videos on, you know, the odious YouTube. Um, I tried to follow those and I, I you know, I just kind of had to do some trial and error stuff. The ways they did it didn't exactly didn't exactly work for me so um, but frankly I got to the point where I could powder coat bullets and I've done it and uh, it's worked out pretty well so um, yeah that's the uh, that's the interesting part of that well that is it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you exactly like it is and if you have any questions or comments I said this at the beginning but you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. So anyway, this is all for today. So Old School Guns, out.